Are you still buying your meat from the supermarket? If so, you simply don't know what you're getting. Was the animal treated ethically? Was it fed contaminated grain? Was it chemically treated just before processing? If you care about your health and that of the animal, you'll want to know the answers to these questions. Thankfully, buying directly from the farmer solves for all these problems. Jake and Anne Walkie run Walkie Farms, a regenerative operation in Albury, New South Wales, raising beef, lamb, pastured pork and eggs to the highest standards of animal welfare, land stewardship and chemical free practice. I am excited to partner with Walkie Farm to offer you 10% off the entire Walkie range, from delicious steaks to sausages, lamb rocks, racks and even lard and tallow to replace your seed oils. All orders are packaged and shipped frozen to your door all around Australia. If you have a local farm, by all means, source from them. But if you lack easy access to regenerative produce, then Walkie Farms have you covered. Use code DRMAX at the checkout. That's D-R-M-A-X for 10% off. Circadian health is a bedrock of optimal health. No matter your exercise routine or how clean your diet, if you disrespect your light environment, you will get sick. Cancer, diabetes, obesity, mental health disorders, autoimmune disease, thyroid problems are just some of the issues that can either be worsened or fixed with circadian choices. My 30-day circadian reset is a guided program to help you learn the basics of circadian health. For 30 days, we focus strictly on things like seeing every sunrise, spending as much time grounded as possible, taking sun breaks throughout the day, and blocking blue light and artificial light at night. When you join up, you'll get access to four hours of lessons on how to make key circadian changes, as well as weekly live Q&As. If this is something that you're interested in, then join up today because we start on June the 1st. And if you need some basic equipment, including blue blocking glasses and circadian-friendly lighting, then use my code DRMAX on bondcharge.com to grab all of these products. Now, on to the show. Okay, welcome back to the Regenerative Health Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with repeat guest Tucker Goodrich. Uh, now, Tucker is a risk analyst, citizen scientist, and expert on the effect of polyunsaturated fatty acids, particular seed oils, on health and disease. So, uh, we've I previously talked to Tucker about the effects of um, processed foods and, and seed oils on health, and I would recommend people go back and re- listen to the first episode. But in this episode, we're going to talk about uh, mitochondria and the effect of seed oils on mitochondria uh, and a range of other uh, parallel topics. So, Tucker, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Max, thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure. Good to see you again. Great. So, let I've been going down a, a basically a, a mitochondrial rabbit hole recently, and this idea that can relate, <laughs> yeah. That, that disease, disease, especially the chronic diseases or diabetes and Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, they have a mitochondrial etiology. And I know that you you wrote a blog post in the past uh, referencing Dr. Doug Wallace and his uh, mitochondrial bioenergetic etiology of disease. Basically, where there's when there's defects in the mitochondria, either in proteins that code for the oxidative phosphorylation process or other kinds of acquired defects through environmental exposures, then the, the energy ability of the cell to make energy decreases and then collectively the body starts manifesting um, 
these diseases. So I guess I wanted to get you on today to talk about how you think about um, that and, and basically putting the mitochondria at the center of, of the disease process and then all your work with seed oils um, and how they relate to, to mitochondrial dysfunction and, uh, and, and that topic. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a funny topic because mitochondria are certainly one of those things that most of us don't ever think about. Um, the more you, you know, we all think of them as the cell's energy source or battery and then sort of stop at that point. Um, but it goes a lot farther than that. Um, they're not only they're not only our energy source or rather our way of uh, producing energy from the foods that we, eat. they in a lot of ways run the show. Um, I've thought about an analogy for the mitochondria. And so mitochondria started out as independent bacteria. And then we essentially entered into a relationship with them and they are now sort of a symbiote, right? A symbiote is an organism that, you know, like you've seen uh, those pictures on TV of water buffalo in Africa with these little birds that sit on their back and pick all the parasites off, right? So that's a symbiotic symbiotic um, relationship. The birds are beneficial to the water buffalo because they clear the parasites, and the parasites are beneficial to the birds because they provide, through hosting these parasites, the bird's food source. So we're in a similar relationship with our mitochondria, these former bacteria, and they do a lot more for us than produce power, right? For instance, we depend on oxygen delivery through our bloodstreams, right? And oxygen delivery is done through a molecule called hemoglobin, which is basically contains an iron and has an ability to bind to oxygen and carry it through the blood. It's what makes our blood red. Well, hemoglobin is made exclusively by the mitochondria in our bodies, right? And why are the mitochondria doing that? Because the mitochondria depend on this oxygen, right? So they're sort of, I've thought almost of a way to explain this as imagine humans are a spaceship and the mitochondria are the passengers <laughs> and they're basically running the show, right? They're running us around for their own benefit. And we're, you know, thinking we're independent creatures when in fact we're the mitochondria's means of conveyance and way of getting food and way of being protected from the environment that they're in. Um, so that's how important they are, right? I mean, cyanide, is a well-known poison. Why does cyanide kill you so fast? It kills you because it shuts down the electron transport chain in the mitochondria. And without that, you're dead instantly. Um, so that's the mitochondria. I think one of the best books on the topic is uh, by a physician who is suffering from multiple sclerosis and her book, and I can't remember her name right now, but the book is called Minding Your Mitochondria. And if you are going to avoid chronic disease and heal chronic disease, it's absolutely essential that you are minding your mitochondria. It's a brilliant title for a book. Yeah, it's um, it's something that we don't really think about, but it's an incredible thought that you know billions of years ago there were separate organisms, and then um, one organism engulfed another organism, and somehow they made a pact and an, an agreement. 
to uh, to cohabitate as roommates, and then we, here we are. Yeah, we, we well we outsource the a lot of function to that to the mitochondria, um, and there's the interplay between the mitochondria and the the nuclear genome is um, is important. And when when the mitochondria are dysfunctional, then that will affect the epigenetic expression of genes in in, in our in our cell. And it, it's right. it's it's interesting because um, I guess the the paradigm of disease that mainstream or, or modern medicine is based upon um, is very much one of uh, defects or in, in that nuclear genome. The emphasis is on nuclear genome defects. Um, and we, that we're trying always trying to pin um, the, the genesis or the etiology of disease on various genes in, in that nuclear genome. And they do these you know, GWAS studies where we're, Trying to find ever ever smaller needles in a haystack and trying to blame um, things on 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 these nuclear defects, but um, what what that model doesn't account for, and, and I, I think it, it, it's failed in that we have we can't pin diabetes down to a single gene, and um, it's failed. But when we take that mitochondrial etiology of disease, that paradigm, kind of things start making more sense. So, I mean, I don't know about you, Tucker, but in terms of like theories and hypotheses and frameworks, uh, I think the more robust a hypothesis is, is the more explainable it is of observed phenomena. So if, if you have two competing hypotheses and one is incompletely able to explain the phenomena that you're observing, well, then, you know, then we have to put that one aside and, and find one that can, can better explain what we're seeing. Or figure out what's wrong with it, why it's not explaining it. Sometimes it's, you know, the problem isn't with the hypotheses. The problem is with the evidence that you have. Your evidence may be wrong. Your assumption about your evidence, what it tells you may be wrong. Mm-hmm. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, ideally you want something that's consistent across all the phenomena that you're observing. And, you know, I mean, that's the whole idea of uh, uh, Taleb's black swan. <laughs> that the right piece of evidence, and he's not the first guy to come up with that idea. Uh, he just put it most poetically, but the right piece of evidence can blow up your whole theory. Mm. Yeah, and and for the listeners who haven't read Nassim Taleb, highly, highly recommend uh, The Black Swan, uh, Anti-Fragile, Fooled by Randomness, uh, amazingly useful uh, intellectual framework for thinking about life. And yeah, as as uh, Tucker said, yeah, you, mentioned, you mentioned that I was a risk analyst. I was also a Wall Street trader, and while I was trading, the fellow that I worked for had been Taleb's partner. They sat on a trading desk together and um, managed separate books, but side by side. Um, the fellow I worked for was the fellow who made <laughs> Taleb wound up being a public a public. Uh, intellectual because he didn't do as well as a trader <laughs> yeah well um it, i think it was Karl popper that he so who came up with the original framework this idea of a black swan which is um you can have a hypothesis and you can con- oh, it, continue- goes, it goes back even behind even past popper but we can get into that the historical there was a famous biologist and i can't remember his name right now and his comment basically was um you know, a beautiful hypothesis can be ruined by a single ugly fact. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you can, you have this idea that all swans are white and every white swan that you see is just, you know, confirming, confirming, confirming your hypothesis. But then you take a boat to uh, Western Australia and you see 
um, a black swan. It only takes a, a single sighting of a black swan to to destroy that that hypothesis that all swans are white. So right. uh, that that that's the usefulness in terms of uh, I think an appropriate scientific mindset is to constantly be looking for that those black swans and constantly be trying to steel man or disprove your hypothesis by not looking for confirm- confirmatory findings um, in the way that someone like Ansel Keys did with his, you know, diet heart hypothesis <laughs> for, for, his, for for 40 years, but instead be trying to disprove your hypothesis and look for that, that black swan because that's how you, you're going to get a, a more robust scientific process. Yep. Um, it's like we're on the same page. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so let's let's talk about how seed oils, particularly, um, interact with m- mitochondrial function in in a negative way. Because that that's, I guess, marrying two of your intellectual interests. Yeah. So, when I I forget exactly what the prompt for that was, but at some point I came across the notion of mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, which is, you know, simply put that your mitochondria aren't working the way that they're supposed to. And generally the easiest way to measure that is that they are either not putting out enough ATP, which is the molecule that's used as a fuel fuel and essentially a fuel currency in the body. Um, and, and I say fuel currency. So other processes can be measured by how much ATP they use, right? It's essentially a way of accounting for whether or not a process is going to be beneficial to the organism. If it uses more, you know, an organism is like a company in that it's got a balance sheet. It's got an income statement. And if the income runs negative for too long, then you're go- it, the organism is going to die. Right. So it's a, it's a way of both actually transmitting energy around the cell. And it's a way of accounting for energy being transmitted around the cell. So the mitochondria is essentially in the business of taking energy, either stored energy or energy that is just recently been consumed in the form of fats and carbohydrates mainly, um, and converting that into this ATP. And mitochondrial dysfunction is indicated when ATP is not being produced in sufficient amounts, or alternatively, the process gets so messy that it starts causing damage to the cell that the mitochondria is in. And we have a whole bunch of different mechanisms around that process to try and make sure that it doesn't get out of hand. And, you know, this is, I mean, somebody I read somewhere um, and they were comparing the temperature of mitochondria to this temperature of the surface of the sun, right? That's the order the surface of the sun is not as hot as you would think it is a, and people produce a lot more energy than you think we do. Right. So we are actually, that's the order of energy that is produced in our bodies by mitochondria. And that's a lot of energy. And if that process gets out of control, you know, I mean, it's essentially burning fat, right. And just like a candle in your house, if it gets knocked over, can cause, a lot more oxidation than you want to see in your house. Dysfunctional mitochondria can cause, you know, damage to the systems that they're in. And that damage can lead to all sorts of health problems as we're learning more and more. So, um, yeah, so getting, so then 
what are some of the obvious things that can cause mitochondrial dysfunction? So I started looking at mitochondrial dysfunction in terms of chronic diseases and discovered that every single chronic disease involves some form of mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, sometimes it's not what you would think it is. For instance, well, we won't, I won't jump ahead that much, but um, then I started looking into causes of mitochondrial dysfunction. And I found out that the fatty acid balance in the cell can be a fundamental cause of mitochondrial dysfunction because certain fats are more susceptible to oxidation than other fats are. And if those fats are oxidized, they actually cause a physical and mechanical breakdown in the structure of the mitochondria, which prevents the mitochondria from doing their job, right? A mitochondria is like a little machine. I've actually got this little graphic on my um, screen right now that maybe we can include later of mitochondrial ATP synthase. And it is literally spinning around. It's a molecule that spins around and produces ATP, right? So mitochondria have a structure and the structure is there to allow fuel to enter, enter one end of the electron transport chain and ATP to leave the other end of the electron transport chain. And just like any production line, you know, if the elements of the production line aren't adjacent to each other, then you're going to see inefficiency. Um, and it turns out that what holds all of these components in place are fats, dietary fats. And if these dietary fats are breaking down, as a then they can't hold the production line in place and the whole thing starts to fall apart. And this is a significant enough problem so that you can see this in a microscope, right? A mitochondria that gets to the point where it's almost totally dysfunctional has a different shape and a different size because its structure has collapsed to a functional mitochondria. And they've done experiments in animals, can't do this kind of experiment really in humans, where they're able to, through a simple dietary manipulation, able to cause mitochondria to collapse and become completely dysfunctional. So that's kind of a problem. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because yeah. when, as I said, mitochondria kind of run the show, um, mitochondria control cell death, right? Cells have a suicide program built into them. And there's a couple of different ones, uh, apoptosis, necroptosis, and ferroptosis. Um, there may be others, but those are the main ones. Apoptosis is the happy cell death program. It's basically where the cell puts out a flag and says, I can't work anymore. That flag is controlled by the mitochondria. If enough of the mitochondria throw up this flag and say, we're dysfunctional, cell says, you know, that's a process called uh, uh, mitophagy, right? The mitochondria say that we're dysfunctional and the cell eats them up. If enough of them throw up that flag, the cell throws up a flag to the organism that says, I'm dysfunctional, come and break me up in a clean and orderly way, such that no parts of me are left floating around in the organism, right? So that's what you want is autophagy. If the process, that process gets out of control, you wind up with something called necroptosis, right? This is the messy cell death protocol where essentially it blows up 
the cell breaks down. Some of the stuff, some of the cell components are disposed of the way they're supposed to be, but other ones wind up floating around in your bloodstream, right? And some of those things floating around in your bloodstream, because the mitochondria started as a bacteria, look like a bacterial infection to your body, and that can cause problems. Um, so then there's a third pathway, ferroptosis, which encompasses... Ferroptosis is still under development as a in our understanding of the process, but ferroptosis can lead to either autophagy or necroptosis, or rather, to, yeah, to uh, apoptosis and autophagy or necroptosis and cell contents being spilled throughout the organism, um, depending on how orderly the process runs, right? So if you were a physician and you have a patient with a heart attack, you're going to look for a measure of troponin, right? Troponin is a molecule that is released from damaged heart cells, right? So when your heart, uh, when you have a heart attack, one of the ways that this can happen is the blood flow to the heart is blocked by a clot. That causes a shortage of oxygen. The shortage of oxygen, when the clot breaks, can either directly kill the cell, obviously, or if the cell gets a flood of oxygen coming back into it, the mitochondria can't handle it, and you get what's known as ischemia reperfusion injury, right? Ischemia is the blockage of blood flow. Reperfusion is the re-initialization uh, of blood flow. And that can cause the heart cells to die. And when they die, they release in this messy process called necrosis, necroptosis, they start releasing troponin. So troponin is a measure of one of these processes, and it's a basic part of standard medicine, or at least if you're a cardiologist, I guess. Emergency, emerg emergency physician, yeah. And cardiologist, right. yeah. yeah. Right. So, yeah. you know, if you have a guy come into your emergency room and you think he's having a heart attack, one of the tests that you can do I mean, first you're going to do an EKG, but one of the tests that you can do to get some indication of what the damage is, is look at his troponin levels and you're measuring necrosis in the heart, basically. Yeah, definitely. So, and do you have gone? Yeah. So this is, um, you know, and that starts getting us into, okay, okay. So what's, you know, what other things are happening as a result of mitochondrial dysfunction? And it appears to be that it's playing a role in all of the chronic diseases, right? Doug Wallace, who is a fascinating scientist in this field, has this mitochondrial energy hypothesis, and he describes it as if you have a city, right, and comparing the body to a city and you start having a brownout, which is the electricity voltage starts going down. What you see are different electrical components in the city fail in different ways. Right. And I've experienced this myself because I messed up my motorcycle years ago. And over the next six months, every single electrical component on my motorcycle failed in some different way. Right. So, 
insufficient voltage in an electrical system can cause failure, right? And it's not always the obvious component to fail would be the incandescent lights, which get dimmer, right? But other components may just start behaving erratically. For instance, I knew several years ago that my phone's battery was going because my phone started throwing all of these strange errors, right? And if that happens, you can, it tells you the phone's not producing enough electricity for all the systems to run correctly. So his hypothesis is that that's what's causing these chronic diseases is the result of mitochondrial dysfunction. And it makes a lot of sense. And interestingly, what he's seen is that mitochondrial dysfunction caused by genetic defects can actually cause different diseases based on how much energy the mitochondria are still able to produce as a result of that defect. Doug Wallace is also the guy who discovered that mitochondrial DNA come primarily from the from your mother, right? They're conveyed down the female side of the genome. Um, an important thing to understand is that the mitochondrial genome is not entirely in the mitochondria. It's outsourced a lot of that genome into the cell. So important parts of mitochondrial DNA that are required for function are in the nucleus, right? And those can also be damaged through mitochondrial dysfunction. That's one of the things that leads, for instance, to cancer. There's a gene called the P53 gene, which is commonly known as an anti-tumor gene. And it controls a lot of the mitochondrial oxidative function and controls which fuel mitochondria use, right? We note that, you know, the Warburg effect in cancer cells is caused by, you know, the Warburg effect is basically when a cancer cell starts switch, switching from using oxidative phosphorylation, which is using oxygen to burn glucose or fats to glycolysis, which is a non-oxygen dependent form of energy production that's much less efficient but much faster right and that switch is controlled by this p53 gene that sits in the nucleus not inside the mitochondria so that's the most common mutation in cancer cells is this change in the control code in the nucleus of what the mitochondria are going to be using for fuel so it's this you know interrelationship between the cell between the path the pilot the mitochondria and the vehicle our bodies yeah yeah and um thomas seafried dr thomas seafried uh, i believe uh he is a researcher who is really talking about uh cancer as a metabolic mitochondrial disease um that is related to the accumulation of or dysfunction of the mitochondria and then dysregulation of cell the cell growth um as a as a result um, I, I wanted to pick up a, a couple points yeah, you made. I interviewed him, by the way, if people are interested in that. Um, okay, fascinating guy, fascinating discussion. Yeah, well, I mean, and it and it's really he's implementing this idea in the context of of cancer. So uh, I yeah. think it's in, in, incredibly exciting, and definitely someone I'll need to talk to in the future as well. Um, I, I wanted to hone in or reinforce this idea of mitochondria as of. Um, ancient bacterial origin and you mentioned that when the cell undergoes um, an uncontrolled cell death it spews out components of the cell into um, the the intracellular space and, and around the body and components of that of the mitochondria provoke an inflammatory response so it's almost like right. you're yeah you're, you're the police in in your neighborhood they're like hang on this guy looks looks similar to 
another criminal that we've seen in the past. Let's go pick him up. And it's enough to make the lights and sirens turn on on, on your immune system. And, and normally that they're segregated away and, and you, they're not inflammatory because your mitochondria are segregated. They're organelles that are safely um, loc- located in your, in your cell and they don't provoke an inflammatory response when everything's w- working properly. But um, I, I interviewed a, a fascinating uh, guy named Danny Lauria and he had experienced so-called what's called phloxing and basically a, a, a long-term um, range of very, very non-specific symptoms like per- peripheral neuropathy and um, a, a range of other um, disequilibrium and uh, symptoms that he'd, he'd experienced after taking fluoroquinolone antibiotic called ciprofloxacin. And the, the basically the yeah, way that – Yeah, very, very dirty drug. And essentially the mechanism of, of toxicity is, is one of mitochondrial dysfunction because ciprofloxacin is, is attacking your bacteria, pathogenic bacteria, but in certain people who um, have a certain predisposition for a number of reasons, that can cause dysfunction of, of their mitochondria. So um, it was interesting from, from his point of view that the things that helped uh, resolve those, these, these symptoms that were from this fluoroquinolone toxicity were specific practices that optimized mitochondrial function. So again, it's like we're tying, we're weaving a story that the, the mitochondria are critical to um, where, to the manifestation of disease, or whether you um, become diseased or or you you right. uh, stay stay well. And and you mentioned just before we just at the beginning of this thread that um, the the components of the the um, I guess the mitochondrial energy production, if if you're building them with the certain fats perhaps that are more oxidizable, then it's like you're trying to build an engine block instead of building it out of steel or, or iron. You're, you're building it out of styrofoam or some some kind of other candle structure. Candle wax is a good Can- analogy there. Candle wax, yeah. So so what Tucker was saying is that um, perhaps if you're not using the right componentry, then your engines are going to be more prone to dysfunction. Right, exactly. I mean, you're – your mitochondria are inherently prone to dysfunction, right? It's, it's not a perfect machine. It's a messy machine. The most obvious sign of the messiness is production of what's called superoxide, which are essentially, you know, oxygen is typically in the form of O2, right? Which means two oxygen atoms. Superoxide is one oxygen atom. It's highly reactive, right? I mean, that's oxidation, right? That's what causes a candle to burn is that the oxygen is associate disassociating from each other and associating with the fats and releasing releasing energy in the process your body depends on the exact same process um but the mitochondria are not perfect machines and they get they release superoxide single oxygen atoms into the Inside of the mitochondria, the mitochondria has a variety of antioxidants, right, which are designed to soak up either singlet oxygen or some of the other products like hydrogen peroxide that are produced through this. And that's all normal. And that's all something that happens all the time. What seems to be the problem in the sort of pathogenic mitochondrial dysfunction, I'll call it, right, the mitochondrial dysfunction that isn't the normal process that results in disease is oxidative stress. Oxidative stress is excess production of 
things that can cause molecules in your body to oxidize, right? Fats, proteins, um, DNA. Um, and when this is happening, so probably we should back up a little bit. There's a fascinating aspect of biology. There are two basic primitive lines of life. There's, you know, the uh, prokaryotes, bacteria, and there's also a line called archaea, right? Archaea are similar to bacteria, but they basically run a different program, right? But it turns out there's one molecular structure that they both share. In bacteria, this is called cardiolipin, right? In archaea, they have a similar structure that's slightly different, but in both organisms, it's required for energy production, right? So what is important? What's interesting about cardiolipin? It's only found in bacteria. It's only found in humans in mitochondria because they're basically bacteria, right? And it's what holds the electron transport chain in place and allows, it also allows the flow of protons and electrons back and forth along the electron transport chain. So if a cardiolipin molecule breaks down, then essentially the structure, that's how the structure of the mitochondria collapses, right? Because cardiolipin, cardiolipin, we've all heard of triglycerides, right? A triglyceride is a molecule of glycerol with three fats attached to it, right? And the fats can vary. Cardiolipin is essentially two glycerol backbones held together with four fats hanging off of it, right? And the that fact makes the cardiolipin molecule sort of cone-shaped. And that cone shape allows what are known as cristae to form in the mitochondria. Cristae are these kind of wavy lines. You know, if you look at a diagram of, you know, or a microscopic photograph of a mitochondria, they have these wavy lines called cristae. The cristae are essentially the electron transport chain, right? All the components of the electron transport chain sit on that cristae and some of the most important ones like cytochrome C are actually sitting there because they're attached to the cardiolipin. So if the cardiolipin breaks down, then the cristae break down. The components of the electron transport chain, A, are dissociated from each other. They're, you know, the mitochondria will collapse because this structure that gives it its shape collapses. And additionally, when these fats in the cardiolipin are becoming oxidized, they don't just disappear, they turn into other things. And the other things can cause adjacent cardiolipin molecules to oxidize if they're comprised of fats that are easily uh, susceptible to oxidation. And that can produce a self-sustaining reaction in the mitochondria that leads to mitochondrial failure, right? Um, they did in two of the important, you know, cytochrome C, which is, I think the electron transport chain component two, if I remember correctly, um, which is bound to cardiolipin cytochrome C is a heme molecule, right? We mentioned how the mitochondria creates hemoglobin. Well, it also uses heme molecules internally. Cytochrome C can deform if the, um, cardiolipin molecules are not comprised of the correct fats and it exposes the 
iron atom to the cardiolipin where it acts as a catalyst and oxidizes the cardiolipin. Now, if you take cardiolipin and cytochrome C separately outside of the context of the mitochondria, you put them in a vial together, they will auto-oxidize until there's no cardiolipin left, right? So that's how destructive a process this can be, right? In your cell, you have antioxidants, the most important of which is glutathione that intercept these oxidative products from the oxidized fats and prevent them from damaging the adjacent fats, the unoxidized fats, right? Glutathione is so important that if you have a glutathione knockout animal, meaning you remove the ability to produce glutathione, they can't live. They'll die as a fetus or they'll die in the process of development because of this background level of oxidative stress that we talked about, right? What seems to be happening in humans is that we are altering the, well, one of the things that's happening in humans is we're altering the fatty acid balance in our mitochondria in a way that predisposes them to oxidation and allows for uncontrolled oxidation, right? Which is how you can make a dietary change and cause a mitochondria to collapse, right? You're adding fats that are susceptible to oxidation and they are going to be damaged by superoxide. They can also, interestingly enough, auto-oxidize, meaning they're so unstable that they can literally just any random, you know, oxygen that they encounter, they will oxidize, produce superoxide on their own, and then the superoxide can also go on to um, oxidize the adjacent fats, right? And you can actually see this unbelievably in a mitochondria with a microscope because the reaction is violent enough that it releases photons. So you can see little flashes as these fats are auto-oxidizing, releasing superoxide and, and photons and causing damage inside of the mitochondria. Wow. Well, th th that's fascinating, Tucker. And, and uh, let, let me summarize quickly for, for the listener. It's so we've, we've already established that the mitochondria's optimal function is critical for us to stay healthy and prevent us from developing disease. The, the mitochondria produce energy in a very, very intensely in a way that involves oxidation. It's an intensely chemically reactive process. And our body and our mitochondria have evolved processes to have uh, an endogenous antioxidant system that dampens down that, that oxidation so that we don't get dysfunction um, at too high a rate. Um, as you mentioned, glutathione is one. Um, another one is uh, melatonin, and we generate melatonin in our mitochondria in response to exposure to, I believe it's near-infrared and maybe even UVA light as well from the sun. So our body has got these processes of dampening down and in the endogenous amount of um, stress or oxidative stress that's being generated as a byproduct of um, electron transport and, and oxidative phosphorylation in the cell. So right. that's that, that's happening at, at, in the background. And then as we live our lives, we're, we are exposed to all these different stresses to our mitochondria that cause mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, the archetypical one that you mentioned earlier in our conversation is cyanide. <laughs> and Cyanide, which is um, fairly an extreme one, it's the it, most extreme. It, it is, it is in in, in extreme uh, argument about extreme. But if you eat enough almonds, um, 
and other certain types of um, phytotoxins can contain uh, significant enough amounts of cyanide to to induce disease. And I talked about that with uh, Anthony Chafee. But um, but so cyanide is at, at one end. And then what we're make, making the, the basis of our discussion is is uh, basically perhaps evolutionarily inconsistent fatty acid molecules. But then what I've been talking about recently with Jack Cruz and uh, and uh, you know I'd suggest people also uh, listen to those podcasts is that things like non non native electromagnetic fields that get emitted from um, you know devices and Wi Fi and can can induce uh, mitochondrial dysfunction. And he, I don't know about maybe Tucker. I don't know if you've heard about this. Um, we mentioned uh, Cruz and I, Dr. Cruz and I talked about this. Is that when the Kelly astronaut went into the um, International Space Station and he was exposed to for a year, exposed to the sunlight, to the sun, and all the radiation from the sun without the protection of the magnetosphere and, and the Earth's atmosphere, um, and then he came back down from from Earth and he com- they compared. The, his um, his methylation of his genome and his disease. He had all these non-specific symptoms. Um, he compared it to his other his brother who had been terrestrial the whole time. His twin and brother. I mean, it was a his twin study. It was really amazing. It, yeah, it was a very elegant study. But the the, the apparent the, the crux of the the issue was that when the sun is not protected, when we are exposed to non-native EMF, and the sun was in that situation a non-native EMF because. It, wasn't protect, protected by um, the Kelly brother wasn't protected by our magnetosphere. We got all this hypermethylation and, and mitochondrial dysfunction. So um, all that to say that there's a there's a, a range of different factors that can induce mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, and we're, what we're going to focus on now is perhaps this idea that if you use fats in your diet that aren't supposed to be there, you're building your engine block with wax instead of steel. Uh, and you're going to start getting getting problems. Exactly, and I mean it's you know it's uh, these fats, and let's just so there's a hierarchy of fats in terms of susceptibility to oxidation, right? Um, saturated fats have what we'll call a full complement of hydrogens, right? So it looks like a ladder. There's a chain of carbon down the middle and then there are hydrogens on both sides it's a straight line you know it's a straight line in your body um stearic acid is a common saturated fat with 18 carbons that's in food and in your body and um those are very resistant to oxidation right i mean they'll burn that's what a candle is made out of is saturated fats mainly that's why they're solid um, I bought a tub of beef tallow once and was rather alarmed when I got it. And it was the consistency of a bar of soap, right? I had to use a chisel and a hammer to get <laughs> chunks of beef tallow off so I could deep fry with it. Right. Um, and it was incredibly stable. I mean, it sat in my garage for years and I would just go down and chip off chunks whenever, you know, I needed to deep fry something. Um, it got a little teeny bit of mold on top of it and I just scraped that off and kept using it and it seemed to be fine. No rancid smell, you know, totally stable. So saturated fats are the most resistant to 
I mean, I say resistant to oxidation. They will burn, of course. That's what a candle is, right? Um, but they don't auto-oxidize. They don't self-oxidize, right? They don't react with things in the environment that causes them to start oxidizing, right? Then we have what's known as monounsaturated fats. Oleic acid, the fat in olive oil is the best example of this, although there are others. Um, I call it your body's favorite fat because your body converts other fats in, like stearic acid into oleic acid. Oleic acid is missing a couple of hydrogen atoms, and therefore it has a double bond between the adjacent carbon atoms. You know, since the carbons can't connect to the hydrogens, they connect to each other. Those double bonds are susceptible to oxidation, right? Since oleic acid only has one of them, it's not super susceptible, but as a molecule of fat starts getting more and more double bonds, and as it gets longer, it becomes more and more susceptible to auto-oxidation, right? So then that gets us to the next step down the chain. So oleic like stearic has a uh, 18 carbons, but it's missing two hydrogens. So it's, we call monounsaturated. Then you get to the most susceptible to oxidation, auto-oxidation, the polyunsaturated ones, right? So they're missing... They have multiple double bonds. They're missing multiple protons at, that create these bonds between the carbon atoms. Those are the ones that are the most susceptible to auto-oxidation, right? And the famous example of this, every, you know, which I learned growing up, is if you're using linseed oil to redo a piece of furniture, right, Linseed oil is a solvent and you can, it's solvent when it's liquid. And then as it cures, it becomes a coating, you know, varnish on the wood if you're refurnishing furniture. And the warning was always, don't leave the rags. You know, you would spread it on using a rag and then you have this rag that's soaked in linseed oil. And the warning was, don't leave them in the sun. You have to be very careful what you do with these because they will burst into flames. Right. And they do. And you can go to YouTube and see a video of somebody soaking a rag in linseed oil and putting it in the sun. And after a little while, solar radiation, poof, it bursts into flames. Right. Well, we have another word for linseed oil. It's called flaxseed oil and it's what's sold as an omega-3 fat source. Right. And these are 18 chain fats that are missing that have three double bonds right formula is 18 colon three which means and they are very susceptible to oxidizing on their own even just by sitting in a shelf so then we have this other fat linoleic acid which is 18 carbons and two double bonds it is also susceptible to auto oxidation right my amusingly enough my washing machine has a warning label on it saying that you shouldn't use it to clean fabrics soaked in vegetable oils because it may not completely clean them and they can self-immolate, right? This is an actual warning label on my washing machine. So, so we have this hierarchy, right? And what, we've, what we see in the mitochondria is that the more polyunsaturated fats are much more susceptible to auto-oxidizing or being oxidized by things like iron as a catalyst or by superoxide floating around or just oxidizing on their own just because it's warm in there, right? 
And that's what starts causing these problems, right? That's why you start seeing mitochondria breaking down with a dietary change because you are replacing resistant fats that are resistant to oxidation, like stearic or oleic, primarily oleic, just because of the way the fat, the uh, molecules in the mitochondria are constructed. Um, if you replace oleic in cardiolipin with two linoleic acid, with two linoleic acid fats that are adjacent to each other, they can actually react with each other and cause auto oxidation in the cardiolipin molecule, right? That oxidized cardiolipin then becomes the signal to the mitochondria that something is going wrong, right? They release toxins, the most famous and well-studied of which, and the, the one that's released in the highest volume is called 4-hydroxynonanol. The abbreviation is HNE. HNE is a fundamental signal in the mitochondria that something is going wrong, and it causes the mitochondria to do what's called uncoupling, which, back to our engine analogy, uncoupling is basically when the mitochondria runs and burns energy but doesn't produce ATP, right? So oxidized linoleic acid causes the mitochondria to realize something's wrong and that it just should produce less ATP. Um, the oxidized cardiolipin can be released from the mitochondria, and that's the signal to the cell that the mitochondria is undergoing damage, right? And if you get, and that induces the process known as mitophagy, where the, you know, the cell says, okay, this mitochondria is breaking down. We need to discard it. If enough of those mitochondria start releasing oxidized cardiolipin with oxidized linoleic acid, then the cell starts undergoing autophagy, right? Through a variety of other processes, but they're all kicked off by this oxidation of linoleic acid in the mitochondrial walls, in the cardiovascular yeah. molecules. Yeah, so we're talking about a, We're talking about a super fundamental process here, right? Now, how do you prevent that? Well, the easiest way to prevent that is if you have oleic acid or oleic acid that's adjacent to, cardio to linoleic acid, then they won't react in the same way, and they make them much more resistant to oxidation. They've done this experiment where they've taken uh, mitochondria and they put a chemical marker on an oleic acid molecule that causes it to replace the linoleic acid in the uh, cardiolipin. They are far, far more resistant to oxidation. And they've done the same experiment in um, rodents where they alter the diet and lower the amount of linoleic acid, raise the amount of oleic acid and it causes the mitochondrial structure to alter, to incorporate more oxidation-resistant fats, and that causes less of this oxidative damage in the mitochondria. They've done similar experiments in humans in the context of cardiovascular disease, right? So now this oxidized cardiolipin, so let's say you've got too much oxidized cardiolipin and you can't do autophagy because the cell is breaking down too fast. There's too much damage happening and you get necrosis and you get the cell contents being sprayed out into the body, right? Well, there's an autoimmune disease called antiphospholipid syndrome, right? We see this aspect of autoimmune disease in a lot of other autoimmune diseases, but it's a distinct one on its own. And what's happening in antiphospholipid syndrome is that 
so much oxidized cardiolipin is being released into serum that your body interprets it as a sign of a bacterial infection and starts attacking itself, right? These oxidized cardiolipin are a hallmark of bacteria. In fact, that molecular pattern is a hallmark of a bacterial infection, right? So you can do this. You're probably familiar as a physician with endotoxin, right? Lipopolysaccharides. A lipopolysaccharide will induce the same reaction in the body as an oxidized cardiolipin molecule or another oxidized phospholip, another oxidized fat molecule like an oxidized phospholipid, right? So antiphospholipid syndrome is an autoimmune disease, we call it, where your the molecules in your mitochondria and in your cell membranes are becoming damaged through, you know, too much, you know, these processes that we've been describing and your body interprets this as a bacterial infection and starts attacking itself, right? Leading to situations like what your, the fellow you interviewed was probably experiencing. Fascinating. And um, what, what we can really conceive of antiphospholipid syndrome, it's almost like end state or severe uh, end stage uh, mitochondrial dysfunction so much so that it's provoking that autoimmune recept, uh, uh, response. And, and, and I'd make the point that the immune response to bacterial components like lipopolysaccharide is a very, very ancient, evolved, innate immune response um, right. that, uh, yeah, like the toll-like receptors and all this kind of thing. So it is a very, very – sorry, go on. Yeah, it's so, it's so ancient that when they started looking at these antibodies – they discovered, I mean, we've all heard, you know, especially in light of COVID, we've all heard about, you know, generating antibodies and the antibodies hopefully protect you against whatever pathogen is trying to get into your body. This is such an ancient process that we actually have germline antibodies for these things, right? They are mm. coded into our DNA and our body is so sure that it's going to encounter these patterns of molecules that it's in our DNA to produce these antibodies, right? And they initially found, you know, this was as a result of cardiovascular research. They were where the same process is happening, right? Excess linoleic acid becomes oxidized in your membranes. In this case of the LDL, it causes it to become pathogenic. And they discovered this mouse antibody to OxLDL. And then they realized that it was a, also a germline antibody to staph, right? To staph, I think it was staph. It may have been staph or strep, right? But one of the common bacteria that we all have on our skins and in our bodies, right? Um, that we know our, you know, evolution has taught us that we're always going to be encountering them and it might be handy to have built-in antibodies to them. Well, these built-in antibodies not only react to bacteria, they react to oxidized LDL, and they react to oxidized cardiolipin, exact same antibody, right? Yeah. So we're looking at a fundamental, I mean, I can't emphasize that, how fundamental this process is. And essentially yeah. what we're doing is kicking it up higher than what it ought to be. Yeah. And I also want to, before I give a bit more context to the specific cardiolipin um, oxidation, I also want to make the point that 
mitochondrial uncoupling, which is when, as Tucker described, um, when a, the mitochondria aren't necessarily making ATP, that, that's also a, a physiological adaption in certain um, uh, ethnic races to higher, um, lower temperatures. Um, because if you can uncouple your mitochondria, you can produce heat, and you're, you're better able to survive um, in, in the northern latitudes. So, so not not always yeah. pathological. Brown, um, yeah, it's, again, it's not a pathological. It's a normal function, but one that has been that is taking place at a pathological level, right? Brown adipose yeah. tissue is what we have to produce to do on un, basically uncoupled respiration because the product. The desired product of uncoupled respiration in brown adipose tissue is heat, not ATP, right? That's what enables us to be warm-blooded animals. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of yeah. handy. And, you know, yeah. uh, I can't remember his name, but the guy who's known as the Iceman who, you know, Wim Hof. in a, yeah, Wim Hof. So Wim Hof has, you know, upregulated his brown adipose tissue, uncoupled respiration to the point where he can stay warm in a environment that would cause most people to become hypothermic. Yeah. Yeah. And there's stories of Buddhist monks as well, who've um, been able to achieve such a deep uh, control and experience of their own physiology that they can, they can do similar things. Uh, I I want now, now I want to tie up what you, or just summarize what you said about the, the predilection of cardiolipin to oxidation. So, so we've got these mitochondria. They're ancient bacteria. They've over a period of a billion years, they've become incorporated into our own cells, and they produce energy for us. In the in the most energy intensive organs, so the brain and the heart, there can be thousands of these little organelles, little bacteria in each cell. So I just want to get, right. g- give that to the to the lay listener. Um, it's not like you only have one per cell. Depending on the, the cell type, you can have thousands of these um, energy-producing little organelles in, in each cell. And when, they dis- cause, when they're dysfunctional, they can throw up these signals that say, hey, I'm not working well, and the cell either takes care of them in a very orderly way, like called mitophagy, or um, if too many go wrong, then the whole cell undergoes a, a, a either apoptosis or ne- necroptosis and has to be um, either... Uh, orderly in an orderly way or a disorderly way um, basically destroyed so what 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 Tucker is saying is that and what what we're saying is that in 1900 or in the late 1800s there was a new type of fat that got added to the food supply uh, fatty acid and the proportion of that fatty acid linoleic acid um, as as a proportion of our normal fat intake rose massively and there's a very elegant paper that that shows the percentage linoleic acid um, by calories in the diet prior to 1900 and, and, and in closer to 1990. And it went from less than 3% of total calories, um, linoleic acid became was less than 3% of total calories. Now it's closer to 7 or, or 8% um, in America. Eight, and Probably north of, well north of 8% now. Okay. The data I've seen says that we get about 21% of our calories from vegetable oils and vegetable okay. oils tend to be about 50 to 60% of the fats. So we're probably north, you know, north of 10% of our calories from linoleic acid. Linoleic acid. Yeah. So, so we, so what's happened is that people have, people have massively increased their ingestion of linoleic acid, which is 
should not be more than 3% of the calories historically. And then what, what Tucker is saying is that when you have a diet that's rich in vegetable oil, seed oil, linoleic acid, it becomes part of that mitochondrial structure that you start using linoleic acid in that four, you've got a four-pronged uh, molecule, cardiolipin, which is in that electron transport chain. And you've got four potential fatty acid slots. And if you're making too many of those, um, this highly oxidizable linoleic acid, then the chance that the cardiolipin undergoes dysfunction and then the mitochondria electron transport is compromised and then the whole mitochondrion stops working is much, much increased if you, um, if you use excess linoleic acid or you have too much linoleic acid in the diet. I guess my, my question for you, Tucker, is that what evidence did we have historically or evolutionarily about what fatty acids are in there? And you talked about oleic, you talked about stearic. Are we, should, did we normally have four stearic, acid, stearic acids? Did we normally have two stearic and two oleic? What, did we have linoleic? Like what proportion is evolutionarily normal or consistent? Well, that's, that's a great question. That is, of course, the key question, right? <laughs> um, so, and the answer, sadly, is it depends, <laughs> right? So ultimately, cardiolipin is constructed from the fats in the cells, right? The fat, the cell determines what fats it allows into itself and different types of cells allow different types of fats into themselves, right? Linoleic acid at excess levels can be a problem, but at appropriate levels, it's it can be beneficial, specifically in terms of the um, cardiolipin molecule. A cardiolipin, now you'll often read in the medical literature that cardiolipin is always comprised of four linoleic acid molecules. This is wrong. Um, there are, and you can also find papers looking at what they call cardiolipin species, right? The four prongs of the cardiolipin molecule can be comprised of any of the fats in the cell um, from palmitic acid, which is a shorter chain. I don't know if the super short chain ones become part of cardiolipin, but palmitic to 16 chain carbon, all the way up to things like DHA or EPA or arachidonic acid, right? And different different cells and different organs allow different types of fats into the cells. And, you know, so why would linoleic acid be beneficial? It allows a higher energy output from the mitochondria than some of the other fats do, right? They've done experiments in isolated mitochondria where they replace linoleic acid with DHA and the energy production from the mitochondria goes down, right? However, if you do that same experiment in an actual organism in a, you know, in a rodent, they do just fine, right? And the, why would that be? Because mitochondria run at a partial output all the time, right? They're never running flat out. But in certain organs, it's beneficial to have a higher output. And one of those organs is the heart, right? And that's why cardiolipin has its name. It was first found in the hearts of beef, right? Hence Cardiolipin means heart fat, right? Um, and in the heart, it tends to have higher levels of linoleic acid than, say, in brain tissue, where cardiolipin containing linoleic acid is extremely rare. Um, why is that? The heart has robust 
it's kind of hard to comprehend how robust the heart's antioxidant defenses are compared to the brain, right? The brain is very susceptible to oxidative damage. That's the process that's behind neurodegeneration like Alzheimer's disease. Whereas the heart is so robustly protected against oxidative damage that cancer in the heart is incredibly rare, right? The heart protects itself against cancer, how? By not allowing its cells to reproduce, right? Cancer is a dysregulated cell reproduction process. Well, the heart says, in a way I as an engineer really enjoy, once upon a time when I was developing an application, I was worried about people putting bad data into the application, right? That's a way of hacking an application. So I said, well, we're just not going to allow any data input from the users. Therefore, we won't have to worry about them polluting the system, right? Well, that's essentially what the heart does. The heart says, ha, we've got these cancer-causing molecules, and we'll get into that. We're not going to allow any reproduction. Therefore, cancer of the heart is super rare, and it tends to be, it doesn't start in the heart muscle. It starts in the uh, tissues surrounding the heart. So the heart is protected from oxidative stress to a degree, right? So your cardiolipin composition depends on two things. One is the type of tissue, which you can't control, that's genetic, and the inputs that you're giving it, which you can control on your diet, right? And we've seen this in rats, where they can affect the composition of the cardiolipin in the brain by altering the diet, right? We've seen it in humans, where they can affect the susceptibility of membranes in the blood to oxidation by altering the fats in the diet. They can't, you know, the final stage of the rat experience is to go, you know, extract the brain. So we haven't done those experience experiments in humans yet, but we do look at in the context of Alzheimer's disease, they'll do autopsy data and look at the composition of, um, the membranes in the Alzheimer's brain, and they see that it is different from, and it's different in ways that suggest that a much greater level of oxidative damage is happening than in a normal brain. Yeah, yeah. So there's enough evidence, um, what what you're saying, Tucker, is there's enough evidence to suggest that uh, the amount of linoleic acid that people are getting nowadays from this refined food product, from seed oils, uh, corn, canola, soy, um, cotton seed, grape seed, uh, sunflower. It's it's sufficient to build people's cardiolipin in their mitochondria in various tissues at a way that is excessive and that makes them prone, prone to oxidation. And right. when we, keep going, sorry. Uh, and when we remove those food products, such that we get our our percentage of calories from linoleic acid closer or to under 3%, which was the norm prior to the 1900s before we invented these industrial refining uh, seed oil processes, then the degree of cardiolipin oxidation goes down, the degree of mitochondrial dysfunction goes down, and the propensity to develop chronic diseases like diabetes, um, neurodegenerative diseases um, goes down correspondingly. Basically, we're getting to that latter phase. There are a number of markers that we use to measure these processes. You can't go into a person's mitochondria and try and see what's happening, right? And the mitochondrial models where they take a mitochondria out of a cell and try and run it independently of the body are extremely problematic. 
we won't even, you know, I mean, when you start reading through those, you'll be astonished by how little we actually know about what's going inside the mitochondria. But we do know that certain things are happening in the body, right? We know that when there was a paper that was released in 2011 that found that oxidized cardiolipin produces this chemical that I mentioned before, HNE, and HNE is highly reactive in the body and binds to various things, including proteins. And the protein binding process seems to be a final end stage of HNE metabolism. It's been called irreversible, so it's a really good marker, <laughs> um, meaning it can't be repaired or cleaned out. Um, I really hope that that's not true, but that's what the literature says. Um, so you can go into a person and say, what's the level of protein in their body that's been altered by HNE, meaning it's a protein with an HNE hanging off of it. And that will tell you how much of this process has been happening, right? There's some other molecules that do similar things that are, you know, oxidized linoleic acid metabolites. We call them oxalams. And there's a, been a variety of different experiments including in humans, looking at altering um, intake of linoleic acid and seeing if the production of those oxalams is altered and if that affects disease states. For instance, the National Institute of Health has done some experiments looking at linoleic acid intake and migraine, right? And they've discovered that if you alter linoleic acid intake down to something more historical, evolutionarily appropriate, let's say, that you reduce these oxlams and you reduce migraine symptoms in a way that is it's more efficacious to alter your linoleic acid intake in treating migraine than it is to take any of the available drugs that we have for migraine. So yeah. it's a clear demonstration of dietary intake controlling an inflammatory disease process in humans. Wow. But before you go on, can I just ask you so it's what you describe sounds like a marker a blood marker of cumulative linoleic acid exposure because you're looking at the attachment of 4-HNE to two proteins and then you're simply able to measure it and as a as a clinician the the analogy that i think of immediately is a hemoglobin a1c which is basically a diabetic marker um, where we look at the degree of glycation or the attachment of glucose to red blood cells and by, um, by measuring that amount of um, glycation over um, the period of, of the red blood cell's life, we can estimate uh, an average blood, blood glucose over that period. So are you saying that this, this 4 h &E, um, marker can give us an idea as to how much seed oil someone has been eat eating or how much seed oil they've been consuming? Is that a proxy? It's not a proxy for consumption. It's a proxy for oxidation of the fat. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. it's not just a marker, it's a mediator. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and the difference for the audience, a mediator is something that is involved in the process. Right. So, back to mitochondrial dysfunction, HNE is produced by the oxidation of, of linoleic acid and cardiolipin molecules. And it goes on to alter the components of the electron transport chain. Right. It damages the proteins. It damages ATP synthase, which is the end stage of the electron transport chain. It decreases the amount of ATP that the cell can produce. It damages 
pyruvate dehydrogenase. We were talking about uh, Thomas Seyfried and his cancer research. So when you, the, under the normal order of business in a cell, you have the mitochondria and the cytosol. The cytosol is the part of the cell, you know, basically the background that all the organelles are floating in. The cytosol is a very active metabolic organ, if you want to look, call it that, in that that's where glycolysis, non-oxidative metabolism of um, glucose happens, right? When you are sitting around, if you're a normal, healthy person, most of your uh, energy is going to come from stored fat, right? That's why fat's the main, that, you know, if you look at a pie chart, of glucose storage versus fat storage in the body, it's like 95 to 99% fat and, you know, five to 1% glucose. Um, so if you're sitting around and you're a healthy person, most of your energy is coming from stored fat, teeny little bits coming from glucose. When you start exercising really intensely, energy production from glucose is much faster than from fat. So the cytosol of the cell gets involved and starts oxidizing and starts non-oxidatively producing AT energy from glucose, right? And it does this by converting the glucose into something called pyruvate and then a ox, a enzyme called pyruvate dehydrogenase converts that pyruvate into a form that the mitochondria can use, right? Well, one of the things that happens and damage to pyruvate dehydrogenase is one of the things that we see in the Warburg effect and also in diseases like Alzheimer's in the brain. HNE damages pyruvate dehydrogenase and causes it to become less optimally functional, if not entirely dysfunctional. One study that I looked at examined all the proteins in the cell that are damaged by HNE, and it was like 24% of the proteins in the cell are subject to damage by HNE. And they're primarily around the um, energy production system. So we're talking again about a, you know, a fundamental process here that's gone vastly awry, and we have this marker, but also this mediator of this damage in the form of this uh, molecule HNE, which is yeah. not only used by the body as an indicator of mitochondrial dysfunction, but is what is causing the mitochondrial dysfunction in large part, right? Not yeah. entirely, but it's definitely what is damaging proteins and then can also damage the DNA in both the mitochondria and the cell. Yeah, and, and we talked in depth in our first podcast about 4-H&E um, and its role in um, in inducing dysfunction of the endocannabinoid system and, and fat. Fat. Um, we briefly talked about adipocyte dysfunction. But um, I guess the right. next so, question... You know, back to using it as a marker, if you look at obese people, obese people tend to have really high levels of H&E carbonylation and high levels of these markers that we're looking at that are indicative of pathological linoleic acid oxidation. The, the, um, and I just want to make a quick point about, uh, just a question that came up to, into my mind because I'm fascinated about the influence of, um, the deposition of subcutaneous versus visceral fat. And when I talk to Dr. Sean Amara and we're talking about, you know, the most reliable, efficacious biomarker of health or disease, it's, measuring visceral fat with something like a abdominal MRI is basically um, very, 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 very uh, effective because it simply just identifies visually the presence of this highly, highly damaging um, metabolically active um, fat. Do you know if 
for HNE specifically favours deposition of visceral versus subcutaneous fat? It so for HNE alters the body's. There's something called the Randall cycle in the body. The Randall cycle controls whether you're burning glucose or lipids for energy, right? 4-HNE alters the Randall cycle in such a way that it favors fat production. So this was originally discovered by the guy who is credited with discovering HNE. He gave, you know, he put bacteria in a... Um, in a solution that contained HNA and discovered that they started building up these fat globules inside the bacteria, right? That experiment was replicated in, uh, roundworms. Um, I forget the Latin name of the roundworms that they use for all these things. Um, the C. elegans, C. elegans uh, nematodes, right? one of the standard yeah. organisms used to study basic met metabolism. It turns out that if you give, C. elegans HNE, they become fat C. elegans. <laughs> it's been replicated in rodents. Um, you know, so that's one way that it's affecting adiposity. The difference between visceral fat and, I mean, what seems to be happening is that when, I think as we discussed last time, HNE also damages the adipocytes in a way that they can't split right? They can't reproduce appropriately. So instead of more adipocytes, what you start getting are these huge adipocytes and the huge adipocytes are dysfunctional. And it seems to be, I've not seen this described exactly in the literature, but what seems to be happening is that you get to a certain point where your subcutaneous adipocytes, which are highly resistant to oxidative stress, meaning highly resistant to these fats breaking down, and that makes sense because, again, looking, you know, at the heart, they're the long-term energy storage, and we're designed to store these fats long-term. So a subcutaneous adipocyte is highly resistant to oxidative damage, not impervious, but it's well-designed to withstand it because it's expecting it to happen. And what seems to be happening is you get to a level of dysfunction of your adipocytes where fat storage starts flowing over into your visceral fat and the visceral fat is much less able to deal with oxidative damage. And that's why you start seeing. So we have this pattern, which I sort of described briefly in terms of cardiolipin, but we see it in every single aspect of the chronic diseases, right? So tissue becomes inflamed, it becomes inflamed because it's producing these oxidized fats. The body reacts to this as a bacteria, as it would a bacterial infection, and you start getting macrophage infiltration of the tissues, right? Um, the macrophages are white blood cells. One of the things that they do to defend against a bacterial infection, unfortunately, is to produce a lot of oxidative damage, right? So when you have, you know, I mean, we're when you have a macrophage go into a tissue that's super susceptible to oxidative damage and it starts causing more of it, which is the body's natural way to defend itself against an infection, you wind up with this essentially autoimmune reaction, right? That happens extremely bad, extremely, and in a rather extreme fashion in the visceral, visceral adipose tissue, right? 
And that's why it's a good marker of metabolic disease because it's indicating that this oxidative damage process has gotten way out of control, right? And not only are you having inflammation, inflammation's fine. Inflammation is always a response to a damage and it's part of the healing process but you're constantly triggering more inflammation and the body is incapable of healing it. Right. Mm. So yeah, yeah, that's what that's essentially. Now, when you look at, so there's a, so you look at these tissues, there's a disease called, or a disease state called ARDS, um, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome, right? Which is one of the best examples of, this oxidative damage, oxidative stress, oxidative damage pattern in the body, right? And what you see as ARDS progresses is a de decline in the level of the linoleic acid in the blood and an increase in the level of HNE in the blood, right? And this is a normal body, part of your body's defense process. But what seems to be happening is that since you have excess amounts of linoleic acid, you wind up getting excess amounts of these oxlams, these oxidatively damaging molecules, which are great if you're trying to defend against the bacteria, but not so great when you're trying to clean up your body's own tissue, right? So in ARDS, what we see is an alteration in the tissues, declining levels of linoleic acid, increased levels of um, HNE and another molecule called leukotoxin. Um, why is this important? Well, if you take a person in an ICU who can't eat, the standard way to deal with somebody in an ICU who can't eat is to give them what they call parenteral or total or parenteral nutrition, right? Which is feeding them and bypassing the gut, right? You're not feeding them orally, you're feeding them intravenously. And what they found is that if you feed them intravenously and the standard thing, let's jump to the punchline. The standard way of doing this is by feeding them soybean oil, which is high in linoleic acid. Okay. So if you take people who are in an ICU and you start pumping them full of soybean oil, they start getting much higher rates of ARDS and they start getting, they have a seven times higher mortality rate, right? The study that did this was done in an ICU in a hospital, and it was very good. The way they conducted the study was very good medicine and very poor science, because in a scientific experiment, what you're going to do is try and keep the variables constant through the entire experiment. These doctors realized they were killing their patients by injecting them full of soybean oil. <laughs> and so what they saw during the course, what they did during the course of the experiment was they stopped doing that and the mortality rate went down, right? So the initial mortality rate was sevenfold and then they got it down to, you know, I mean, if you're in an ICU, you're going to have a mortality rate. Unfortunately, they're very sick people, but they were able to significantly reduce the mortality rate, um, from injecting linoleic acid into these people's veins. So in visceral tissue, what you tend to see is what seems like the same process. You see higher levels of saturated and monounsaturated fats and lower levels of polyunsaturated fats. But just like in ARDS, what I think that indicates is that it's because the polyunsaturated fats have already broken down and that's what's, you know, we know that that's what's triggering the inflammatory process. 
Mm, yeah. The the other question that I'd have in, is that, again, this 4-HNE compound for the listener so that we, we, we keep you with us, 4-HNE, 4-hydroxynonanol is made as a breakdown product of linoleic acid. What is linoleic acid? It, it's a polyunsaturated fatty acid that is enriched in refined oils of corn, soy, canola, sunflower, um, cotton seed, grape seed. So we, you purify these these seeds, you get a, a polyunsaturated, uh, uh, an oil that is rich in polyunsaturated fats, particularly linoleic acid. You ingest this linoleic acid, it breaks down into 4-HNE. 4-HNE has all these effects that Tucker has talked about in terms of carboxylation and alteration of protein structure, damage of proteins, influence of the fat cell's ability to divide properly um, and in influencing the ability, the, the predisposition to developing metabolic inflammation, which is one of the key pillars of, of the development of, of chronic disease. And we've tied in cardiolipin as well um, in that if you build your cardiolipin in your tissues with a higher amount of this linoleic acid that's prone to oxidation, you're more likely to get um, mitochondrial dysfunction because the cardiolipin is more likely to break and, and cause cause dysfunction. I guess the, the question I had um, maybe before we move on is that is there a source of HNE in the body or environmentally that is unrelated to um, linoleic acid breakdown? HNE can only be made from omega-6 fats. So that's mm -hmm. in the body that typically means linoleic acid or arachidonic acid. Um, mm. And it is, as I think I mentioned, produced normally in the body. We have antioxidant defense mechanisms. It triggers uncoupling in the body, right? So it, you know, and I think it's really important to make this point. I try and make it every time I have one of these conversations. You are going, if you eat a whole food diet, you are going to have some amount of omega-6 intake. That's normal. It's expected. Long chain omega-6 fats like arachidonic acid are essential in the diet. What does that mean? That means that you can't survive without them, right? So we like that. Um, unfortunately, poor science has led us to think that linoleic acid is one of these essential fats. And it wasn't discovered until quite recently through the process of this parenteral nutrition-induced disease in humans that we've discovered that linoleic acid is not an essential fat. So, yeah, the process of generation of HNE in the body is normal. It's expected, you know, it's used as part of your body's defense system against infection. Um, that's all lovely and wonderful. You know, the problem is, again, they've done this experiment similar to what I described with uh, linoleic acid containing cardiolipin and cytochrome C, where it auto-oxidizes until there's nothing left. If you take a white blood cell, a neutrophil, which is a defensive white blood cell, and you put it in a vial full of linoleic acid, it will convert all of the linoleic acid into something called leukotoxin until there's none left, right? So it seems to be a process that's typically regulated by availability, right? Not... <laughs> There's no rate limiter for the amount of linoleic acid that will be converted to leukotoxin. Leukotoxin mm -hmm. is an oxidized linoleic acid molecule, right? There are two steps to go from linoleic acid to leukotoxin diol. Leukotoxin diol is what causes ARDS, 
period end of story, right? This is well, de well described in the literature. I've introduced, uh, or I've interviewed Bruce Hammack, the science scientist who's done a lot of research on leukotoxin diol and discovered the enzyme that produces it in the body. And there's no question that leukotoxin diol is what causes age-related or acute respiratory distress syndrome. That's important because ARDS is how COVID kills you, right? Yeah. And this, he's done research in COVID patients and they have this sky high level of leukotoxin in their body. Again, let's reiterate, leukotoxin is only produced from linoleic acid and it's produced as part of the body's defense system, but too much of it will kill you, right? Um, and then this, uh, yeah, where was the point I was going to there? I was sneaking up on something, but that's, so that's a really, you know, oh, so which we think is why we see so much higher rates of COVID mortality in industrial countries because, and especially in obese industrial countries, because those are the countries that are consuming the most excess levels of linoleic acid. Yeah. And that is, uh, I mean, what, 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 we're, what we're tying in is all these different mechanisms. Basically, Tucker is giving you the, the nuts and bolts, the, the hard science about why eating seed oils uh, is harmful to your health. And, and I, I talked to Dr. Brian Curley, seed oil disrespector, and we just, I just released that episode quite, quite recently. Um, he says, he, he puts it so simply that cut, you, yeah, you interviewed him as well. Cutting out seed oils is the 80-20 of nutrition. Actually, my business partner. Oh, there you go. Um, it's the 80-20 of nutrition. And basically, Tucker has just told you about how, and from a very, very basic or ground level by scientific level, why these um, seed oils are, are so harmful. Look, I, I wanted to pivot the conversation next, Tucker, to your perspective on a couple of different players in, in the field. And um, uh -oh. in the... <laughs> and, and, and this is th uh, this is good because I, I really want to open the discourse up and I want people to be able to think critically about different um, different thought leaders approaches and and hopefully we can collectively get closest to truth and um, so so dr. Jack Cruz who I've done two parts and I'm about to release a third part and um, he is very much focused on mitochondria as well and I think that um, your your perspectives are very uh, are aligned in, in a lot of ways. And uh, in terms of his approach, the excess omega-6 to omega-3 um, is something that he thinks he's strongly about. And he advocates a cons consumption of lots of seafood, which is rich in DHA, which is an omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acid. And we talked at length about how the central retinal pathways, which connect the eye um, to the hypothalamus and the brain, uh, are highly 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 enriched in in dha because it allows very 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 um high fidelity um transport of of uh of information electrons Trans transfer so, photons into nervous signals exactly exactly well put and so so dr cruz has talked about um mitochondrial dysfunction but i guess his emphasis has been on the ability of the mitochondrion or, or dysfunction of the mitochondria in its ability to act as a battery. And when it, when it's not able to, I guess, harvest electrons or maintain its charge as a, as a battery within the cell, then you get mitochondrial heteroplasmy, which is 
um, I guess what we talked about earlier, which is accumulation of mitochondrial um, defects, DNA defects that in, in, impact in its um, ability to function. And then disease is, is a manifestation of the heteroplasmy rate. Um, I, I guess what I would ask you, Tucker, is um, what is your perspective on the mitochondria as an environmental sensor? Because that is a, is a cr- critical part of Dr. Cruz's message, which is that these colony of mitochondria are sensing the environment and they're then feeding back that information um, to the body. So, I mean, do you have any thoughts about that particularly or, or thoughts generally about Dr. Cruz's work? Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid to say not super familiar with his work. Um, I've tended to, I met a fellow years ago who's quite famous, Jimmy Rogers. He's a financial commentator and he as a basic premise would never take an investment idea from anybody else. He wouldn't even talk to you about it. He didn't even want to know what you were doing. And he did everything himself so that he couldn't be biased in his thought process. So a lot of folks who I respect and I think are doing interesting work, I don't read their stuff because I don't want to bias my own thought processes. Thank you, Jimmy Rogers for teaching me that. Um, So they're, you know, it's not, I don't do that 100%, but it's my basic premise. Um, so let's talk about what he's describing. Is Does that happen? Yes. Does, do, is there a pathway for the mitochondria to sense the environment? Let's look specifically at the eye. Yes, absolutely, right? The eye receives photons from the environment. Those photons affect the polyunsaturated fats in the retina, One of those polyunsaturated fats in the retina is linoleic acid. Um, In the retina, linoleic acid can break down into H&E. Here we go again, right? Blue light, not even ultraviolet light, which can't penetrate cornea to the retina, but blue light, which obviously we see, does, and that is sufficient enough to cause linoleic acid to auto-oxidize into H&E, right? So... This is one of the few areas where dietary intake of omega-6 fats versus omega-3 fats is well-recognized as part of a disease process. Um, One of my colleagues who does a lot of great work that I mostly ignore is Chris Kenobi. He's an ophthalmologist, and he's talked a lot about the medical literature evidence for age-related macular degeneration being a product of omega-6 fat intake in excess. And that is pretty much the standard understanding in medicine, right? It's one of the few areas in medicine where this is understood to be a standard part of the disease process. Um, So we know that that happens, right? And just to be a little provocative here, it would therefore be fair to say that linoleic acid is the leading cause of blindness in the United States, right? Since Age-related macular degeneration is the leading cause of blindness in the United States. So, yeah, absolutely. What is happening in the eye? You were getting photons coming in, normal process. They're altering these very susceptible fats. Omega-6 fats break down to HNE. Omega-3 fats break down into some other chemicals called H... I think it's hydroxyhexanol is the HNE equivalent that omega-3 fats break down to it's far less toxic than 
omega-6 than HNA. It's far less reactive, right? So even though that oxidation process is happening with those fats, it's producing far less damage. Um, so what is happening in the mitochondria? The mitochondria are, he's talked about how they're sensing photons and reacting to those photons. Um, as I mentioned, the process of cardiolipin breakdown generates photons, right? In the production of superoxide. And you can see those, you can look at a mitochondria and see these flashes of lights as the cardiolipin are oxidizing. So am I, would I be shocked to hear that the mitochondria have some way of sensing this excess energy flux coming from internally and potentially externally? Shouldn't be surprising at all. Could that be part of the disease process? Well, so there's a really funny, there's a really funny story about the scientist, and I can't remember his name, but he was the fellow who was tasked with figuring out what is a safe level of exposure to x-rays, right? And while he was playing around with x-rays, trying to figure out what the safe level of exposure was, he came down with athlete's foot. <laughs> this is one of these scientific stories that sounds like a joke until you realize it's true. How did he cure his athlete's foot? Well, he bombarded his foot with x-rays and killed the pathogens. <laughs> right? What happened to this guy? Now, this was the guy who was in charge of figuring out what a toxic level of x-ray production was. And I will tell you that bombarding your foot with x-rays is way above the toxic level. So what happened to him? Well, he died at 103. In good there you health are. by all accounts, right? So in the 1950s, they were looking at what causes um, what causes radiation toxicity. Let's guess: <laughs> oxidized linoleic acid, right? And that is why they've actually used this as a so the radiation penetrates the tissues. As we've seen in the eye, it doesn't have to be ionizing radiation. And this for a long time was what the standard response that I heard to people who said that things like cell phone radiation couldn't be harmful because it's not ionizing radiation, which means it's not actually altering the structure of the atom, turning it from, you know, a stand. An ion is an atom with more or less electrons than what one would expect, right? And that's the standard understanding for how radiation damages the body is that it alters the atoms. Well, radiation can also break down molecules like linoleic acid that are highly susceptible to radiation damage. And that causes, from what this paper back in the 1950s found, the damage from radiation. Why would this guy in the early part of the 20th century be able to zap himself with x-rays and apparently have no ill effects because he was living in a time where linoleic acid was not a common part of the diet, potentially. That's a hypothesis. Right? Yeah, and, and and not a lot of other sources of non-native EMF either. There was no um, 5G, there was no Wi-Fi signals back then either. Right. So is it, you know, is it plausible that environmental radiation, non-ionizing environmental radiation could have an impact on our health? Well, blue light and linoleic acid is a leading cause of blindness. So absolutely, it's plausible. Mm -hmm. Are there other pathways that Jack Cruz has looked into and I haven't? I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's interesting because I, I'm just 
fascinated in collecting as many plausible and explanations of of why we're getting and how we're getting mitochondrial dysfunction and you know what what we've talked about for the past hour and a half is very credible to me in terms of the chief dietary component um, or dietary um, contribution to that mitochondrial dysfunction but I'm definitely still open-minded to um, other environmental contributors to to why these these uh, mitochondria might be breaking down and, and and not working properly and then causing disease. So um, yeah, thanks, Tucker. That's um that's fascinating stuff. So um, in closing, uh, is there anything else that you want to mention about cardiolipin, linoleic acid, mitochondria, or or anything that we haven't spoken about? Well, the question that everybody always asks next is, what do I do about it, right? <laughs> so if you have an – I mean, the first rule of holes is when you're in a hole, stop digging. If you have excess linoleic acid, and I will posit that everybody in the United States who's not actively trying to avoid this stuff has excess linoleic acid. That's what the research shows us. It shows a steady increase in the level of linoleic acid in adipose tissue throughout 20th century in humans. Thank you, stuff in DNA. Um, the first rule of holes is to start avoiding it, right? Different tissues have different turnover rates, right? A lot of, we talked about the process of autophagy, you know, I mean, there are some tissues like your skin where you constantly have skin cells flaking off. And at the other extreme, you have things like your heart cells, which are never replaced, right? We know that you can alter the fat content in different tissues. It's probably going to happen in different rates at, in different tissues, depending on the turnover in those cells, right? Part of that is that things like cardiolipin that are damaged in cells can be reconstructed, even if the cell, like a heart cell, is not going to be damaged. So, you know, the first thing to do is to try and lower your linoleic acid intake, which is obviously start with avoid seed oils. You also want to avoid animals in the food system that are fed high amounts of seed oils like pork or chicken um, because those will concentrate the oils the same way we do. And then when you eat them, I mean, apparently, according to the um, National Cancer Institute, I think that's the right body, chicken is the highest source of omega-6 fats in the American diet because of what chicken are fed. They're fed grains and they're fed seed oils because it fattens them up and it's really cheap, right? Um, so you yeah. want to avoid seed oils yeah. and animals that have concentrated seed oils in their into their tissues. Yeah, on that, on, sorry, on that point, monogastric animals, so the, the pig and the chicken f- f- eating an, a non-evolutionarily appropriate diet are going to concentrate these these omega-6s into their fat tissue. And when you eat them, as Tucker said, then you're getting excess sources of, of linoleic acid and, and omega-6. The interesting thing anecdotally, I mean, I, I, I'm good friends with a regenerative farmer um, uh, here in Albury, and um, he's had a, had a colleague who was, when they first started raising pigs and they're using the uh, grains or other kind of spent, um, probably industrial-type food stuffs, and they butchered the pigs. They commented how more less li- more liquidy, less firm, and just generally smelly the adipose, the fat tissue of the pigs were that were fed these kind of um, what I presume would be a more omega six rich diet. Uh, 
Um, and then once they put the pigs on pasture and they stop feeding them any type of grain uh, or any type of seed oil, I think they were still fed some kind of grain. And the, the, the fat tissue was much more robust, um, more solid, didn't have that off smell. Um, so that was just an interesting anecdote about um, the, the diet of, of, of agricultural animals and, um, um, yeah, and, and palatability. I mean, that was discovered in the early 1900s. I read a paper about what to do with rice bran, right? Because when you make white rice, you take the bran off. What's in the bran? The oils. What are most of the oils in rice bran? Omega-6 fats. And they were, you know, so they had this waste product. They were trying to figure out what to do with it. And initially the thought was to feed it to pigs. And they didn't like the change in the pig's fat, right? As you described, because they're polyunsaturated fats, they're not solid at room temperature. And it alters the fat from firm to this squishy, disgusting stuff. I mean, you can see this. You know, I used to, for a while, I was trying to cook with bacon grease. And if you save the bacon grease and put it in a cup and leave it out on the um, counter, you know, if it's high in saturated fat, it'll solidify. But generally, it doesn't. It's just oily, right? And I gave up on that project after a while because I realized unless you go to great lengths to get pastured pork and save that bacon grease, you're going to get something that's mostly seed oils. And I mean, this is, you know, this is upsetting to people who like to cook with lard, but lard is one of the standard fats that you, that's used in science to induce obesity in animals. And a large part of the reason for that effect is because of the high levels of linoleic acid in the fat, right? The same group that did the study that you referenced, um, Blasbolg 2011, um, is the paper that looked at the change in linoleic acid intake over the 20th century. Mm. They did a follow-up experiment where they looked at the effect of that change in linoleic acid on obesity in lab animals. And they found that the low level, the 1900s level doesn't produce obesity, but the 2000s level does produce obesity. Mm. And interestingly enough, the variable, you know, cause whenever you change something in a diet study, you actually have to change two things. So they increased the amount of linoleic acid and lowered the amount of saturated fat. And the lower saturated fat diet with the higher linoleic acid was the obesogenic diet, right? And the company that produces the standard obesogenic diet, Research Diets, they use lard and soybean oil to induce obesity. And there's a lot of linoleic acid in their lard. It's like 30%, I think. So it's, you know, like a canola oil, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. So... um Avoid seed oils, avoid animals fed commercial, commercially raised chicken and pork, um, find a farmer that is, is doing pastured pork and, and feeding them a species-appropriate diet. Um, anything else that people can do, Tucker? Well, the other the, – so once you're going to stop digging when you're in the hole, the question is how do I start, you know, undoing the damage? Well, it turns out – that linoleic acid is preferentially burned from adipose tissue when you are fasting. Okay. This is from study in humans. So what do you want to do? You want to upregulate your fat oxidation systems. That means doing what I like to refer to as mafetone style training. What 
folks like Alan Cousins, who trains lots of, or Inigo San Milan, who actually work with athletes, call is effective athletic training, right? Producing more energy from fat and doing it when you're fasted. That is the only way I've ever heard of that you can target reducing stored linoleic acid, right? And adipose tissue has a fairly long turnover. It's like 680 days. So, you know, several years it's going to take you to reduce the levels of linoleic acid in your tissue down to an evolutionarily appropriate level. Mm. Um, there's actually a disease called adiposa dolorosa. Have you ever heard of this? No. talks about this. It's sad fat or painful fat. And it's actually, Kate Shanahan is an MD who was on this seed oil thing very early on. It's actually painful fat tissue, right? So one of the other things, one of the other lovely things that HNE does in the body is it activates the capsaicin receptor. Capsaicin is the chemical that makes hot peppers hot, right? It's a pain receptor in your body, inducing injecting HNE into a rodent foot causes the rodent to make it think its foot is burning. And adiposa dolorosa is apparently this process by which the breakdown of linoleic acid in stored fat is causing pain in the fat tissue. And Kate Shanahan says that in her clinical experience, she's seen people reverse that by going on a low linoleic acid diet. So there's, you know, the only way that I know of and we should probably touch on Ray Pete because he and I have a difference of opinion in this. The only way that I know of to reduce the linoleic acid or the most effective way to reduce the linoleic acid stored in your fat tissue is fasted ex exercise, fasted, low intensity training that emphasizes fat burning because it allows your body to burn, burn linoleic acid out of your fat tissues. Mm. Um, I, I'd make the point about uh, someone said, is, what, is it what's worse, smoking a cigarette or, you know, eating a packet of uh, McDonald's fries, you know, French, French fried in, uh, in seed oil. And the argument that this person was making is that the persistence of linoleic acid in your adipose tissue, in your fat cells, in your body, um, and the duration of time that it, it exists there means that um, the, the cumulative stress or the uh, total harm to the body would be less if you smoked a single cigarette than, uh, than ate, ate a whole bunch of French fries. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure about that. I don't know what you think about that, Tucker, but that's Martin, just an... In the scientist is Martin de Groot. He's okay. one of the early guys who researched um, how linoleic acid breaks down into toxins in cooking fats. Yeah. And that's his point is that consuming these fats in their oxidized state is more damaging than cigarette smoking. And he's got the data to back it up. And it's not wow. surprising because some of the toxins that are produced from oxidized linoleic acid, like acrolein are the same toxins that are produced from cigarette smoking. And one of the things that cigarette smoking does is induce the oxidation of these fats in the body, which is why cigarette smoking increases the levels of oxidized LDL in humans and also increases the rates of diabetes, surprisingly, in humans, which is another pathway from oxidized linoleic acid directly to type 2 diabetes. HNE induces insulin resistance. 
Wow. Well, well, you'll have to give us these um, papers and I'll put them in the show notes so people can oh, have, have a overview of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, great. All right. Well, you heard it here, folks. You're better off uh, smoking a cigarette than to have your large uh, McDonald's fries and, uh, you know, seed oil rich foods. Um, Which is uh, to encourage smoking cigarettes. No, not, not at all. Not at all. Um, not by any means. So, okay, Tucker, well, we've we covered a heap of ground. Um, this is almost two hours now. We talked about um, mitochondria, mitochondrial function. We talked about how when they break that you get disease. We talked about they have a critical um, component called cardiolipin that's, that dates all the way back to prokaryotic organisms. We talked about when you eat a seed oil-rich diet, which most people are doing most of the time, um, you build cardiolipin, you make it prone to oxidation because it has more linoleic acid in it. Your mitochondria are more prone to dysfunction. Your cells, therefore, are, uh, undergo process of um uh, apoptosis or, or um, necroptosis. So we, we, we covered so much. Um, so thank you for, for sharing your, your wisdom with us. Um, and maybe we'll, we'll have to talk again about a whole bunch of topics that I, that I, that I didn't get to ask you this time, but uh, that I'd love to get your opinion on. So, uh, yeah, thanks for your time. Um, and, yeah, well, uh, thanks for sharing all, all this info with uh, the listeners. Max, it's been great. You're it's great talking to somebody who's as learned on these topics as you obviously are, you know, it's really, you're asking all the right questions and you're thinking and you're going down all the right paths. Great. All right. Tucker. Cheers. Talk soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next time.